We now turn to our scripture lesson for the sermon this morning as we continue making our way through 1 Corinthians. We come to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, picking up at verse 26. We'll read through the end of the chapter, verse 26 through 40. So this is God's holy word as he inspired the Apostle Paul to write this to the church at Corinth. And so we know that this is infallible as it was given by God. So let's attend with reverence to the reading of the Holy Word of God. Again, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 26 through 40. How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation? Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two, or at the most three, each in turn, and let one interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. But if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. But you can all, for you can all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Or did the word of God come originally from you, or was it you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy. Do not forbid to speak with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. That sends the reading of God's holy word for us at this time. Let us seek the Lord's face in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your written word, and we pray that you would help us to be humble and contrite, that as we come to your word, we would submit to what you have to teach us. So we pray that you would open our hearts now and help us to learn what you would have us learn and apply it well to our lives. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in last week's passage, uh, Paul argued that prophesying, including the exposition of God's word, is more profitable for the church than the gift of tongues. For one thing, as we saw back in chapter 13, the gift of tongues would soon cease. For another, it was for, as we saw last time, unbelievers. Uh, So, in a worship service where most or all should be professing believers in Jesus Christ uh, and their children along with them, uh, tongues would not ordinarily be needed. And furthermore, even when an unbeliever does come, Paul said, uh, he's more likely to be convinced by the solid preaching of God's word than by the extraordinary sign of tongues. Unless 
it happened to be that someone spoke in a tongue that that person knew, and he knew that the speaker didn't know it, uh, so that it was an authenticating sign that would testify to the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit. And Paul writes in verses 24 and 25 here, I'm going to follow prophesy, or actually it was before, just before our reading for today. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an uninformed person comes in, he is convinced by all, he is convicted by all, and thus the secrets of his heart are revealed, and so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is truly among you. And that's where today's reading actually picks up. Paul's conclusion relative to tongues will again be that while tongues may have a place on occasion in first century worship, uh, prophesying will always be edifying. And again, remember, we saw that prophesying has uh, two elements to it. One was that in the first century, there were uh, prophets and apostles receiving word from the Lord to guide the church as the New Testament was being written, but also prophesying has simply the element of telling forth the already written word of God, and that, of course, continues as long as this world lasts. Along with this overemphasis, though, that we saw in Corinth on tongues, we see that apparently some in the Corinthian church were randomly speaking in tongues, uh, whether genuinely or falsely, and disrupting the order of worship. So Paul's overarching principle is that all things in a worship service must be done decently and in order. And that's the main point of this passage. Worship services must be conducted decently and in order. And to that end, he says several things need to be kept in mind, tells the Corinthians. What edifies needs to be emphasized. That was something he already taught earlier in this chapter. So what edifies should be emphasized. Number two, if some spoke in tongues uh, when that gift was still active, it needed to be few and in turn. And we can derive some principles for ourselves even from that. Three, if someone were to speak in tongues, they must be, there has to be someone present who could understand and interpret. That goes right along with doing what edifies, as we saw before. Fourth, uh, most should silently pray and reflect on what is spoken during a worship service. Five, those who speak or teach God's word have to take turns. You can't have people speaking over each other, right? And then six, only qualified teachers, actually I have a seventh point, but six, only qualified teachers may teach in the worship service. And then number seven, the written word of God is central to worship. So we're going to see those things as we dig into this passage. So let's start with the main point. Worship services must be conducted decently and in order. Notice in verse 26, Paul speaks of whenever you come together. You might recall that clause uh, in connection with the Lord's Supper back in chapter 11 in verse 18. As we see from the context then, that when Paul says whenever you come together, he's not just saying about it's not talking particularly about whenever you come together for fellowship or you happen to meet in the marketplace or something like that. He's talking about when the church gathers for worship. When the ecclesia, the assembly of God's people, gather together, not just for some other activity, but for the official assembly, that is for the worship of the Lord. As we can see from uh, 
verse 26, the worship services at Corinth had become disorderly. But in verse 33, Paul reminds the Corinthians, God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. Or uh, more literally, the Greek is, God is not of confusion, but of peace. There's nothing about God that has anything to do with confusion, with disorder. Confusion has nothing to do with the character of the God that we're gathering to worship, so why would we want there to be disorder and confusion when we're trying to worship him? So Paul concludes in verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. Decently, the word means properly or becomingly. It can even mean beautifully. Not chaotically, but in a fashion that is becoming of Christians. In order, Katatoxin, actually, in the, in the Greek. Literally, according to order, or according to orderliness. Uh, the word for order there is uh, taxon. It's the, the word from which we get taxonomy. If you've ever heard of the, the science or the practice of taxonomy. What is it? It's the discipline of categorizing things. Of placing things in their proper place. So usually it's uh, something that is talked about, especially in biology. You know, what... What kind of animal is this? What place do we put it? Where do we put it? Is it a type of cat? Is it a type of bear? Is it, is it a whale? You know, those sorts of things. That's taxonomy. Everything in its proper place it can even mean in turns. So we get from verse 40 that a Christian service of worship has to be orderly. The people need to behave in an orderly fashion. And the service itself should be orderly with each element in its proper place, at its proper time, in turns. So we're not overlapping and having various things going on all at once, so that some people over here are singing and some people over here are praying and somebody here is trying to preach while somebody else is talking over it. That, that would just be chaotic. <clears throat> so you do everything in its proper place and in order. Not various things going on all at once. To, to that end, or rather to the end, that the service of worship would be conducted decently and in order, Paul counsels and commands several things that the Corinthians need to do, they need to keep in mind. Number one, what edifies should be emphasized. Verse 26, How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Notice, by the way, that Paul assumes that psalms are going to be sung there. He could make a plug there for psalm singing. Uh, granted, he doesn't mention every possible element of worship. He doesn't say anything about sacraments here, for example, uh, that's authorized in the New Covenant. Uh, but he does mention elements of worship into which individual worshipers might have some input. You know, topics for teaching, exercising gifts like tongues, interpreting uh, a prophet, receiving a revelation from God. Remember, these extraordinary gifts existed in the apostolic age. Likewise, some might have uh, a request for a psalm to be sung. I would argue that if Paul had uh, taught the Corinthians that they should sing other songs besides the psalms that were appropriate to sing for worship, uh, he would have mentioned them here because... Uh, no doubt, if they were requesting the singing of certain psalms, they would have had other songs that they would be requesting as well. 
that strongly suggests that only biblical psalms were sung in Corinth, as the apostles authorized. But all of the things that Paul mentions in uh, verse 26 were appropriate for Christian worship. But as they were practiced, the overarching principle that he's teaching here is that they have to be done decently and in order, uh, with a greater emphasis on what edifies, what builds up the body of Christ. If things are done in a disorderly fashion, people are going to miss things. Again, if I'm preaching here, and there are other things going on that are distracting you from the preaching, how are you going to learn what I have to say, what God's Word is saying, and what I'm trying to pull out of it for you? They'll fail to learn or participate in the glory, uh, the glorification of God. You know, if we're trying to sing psalms and we're also, some of us, doing something else, again, that's going to inter- disrupt the glorifying of God. As we'll see in the later verses, if several speakers are talking over one another, people are going to miss things. Nobody's going to be edified. No one is edified by psalm singing if we're all singing different psalms. And gifts are practiced that are more edifying. Those should be favored even over other legitimate elements of worship, he says. Verse 39, Therefore, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak with tongues. Uh, So, it's okay in the first century. For the first century church, tongues still had its place. But it, it was legitimate, as we'll see, if done under the right circumstances and in the right way. But, as we saw last week, prophesying was still more edifying and so still should be emphasized. To this day, we emphasize the preaching of God's word rightly as central to worship because uh, the, that's the most edifying effect, or it has the most edifying effect for the most people. In Christian worship, what edifies should be emphasized. Since the extraordinary sign gifts have passed away in the apostolic era, we are left with psalms, teaching, and prophesying in the sense of the exposition of God's word out of that list. And there are other elements that are uh, that are revealed in the New Testament as, uh, as, as those things that are appropriate for New Covenant worship, prayer, sacraments, collecting of tithes and offerings, and so on. But notice that all of the elements of Christian worship endorsed in the New Testament are edifying in some way. Prayer seeks God's face. Offerings teach stewardship. Singing God's word in the Psalms and the reading and the teaching of God's word build us up in the knowledge and in the practice of righteousness, in love of God, in love of neighbor, and many other things. These things are all edifying. In Christian worship, what edifies needs to be emphasized. Number two, Paul in this passage says, if, if some were to speak in tongues, it has to be few and in turn. Verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at most three each in turn, and let one interpret. Again, we've seen previously that this sign was already about to cease when Paul wrote these things. And last week we saw that it was unusual for tongues even 
to be appropriate in the context of a worship service. It was a sign for unbelievers, as Paul said. If it is to be done, and notice Paul does say if, there should be no more than two or three per service. And keep in mind that it was ordinary for worship services pretty much to last all day in those days. Remember in the book of Acts, Paul preached one Lord's Day until midnight when Eutychus fell asleep in the window and fell out and died and Paul raised him from the dead. Or rather, God, through Paul, raised him from the dead. These were long worship services and in that long worship service, two or three at the most should speak in tongues, Paul says. And if there is to be more than one person speaking in a tongue, it has to be that limited number and they need to take in, in turns and not be talking over each other. Uh, there are videos I've seen of people supposedly speaking in tongues in our day, and you know everybody's all talking at once. If that were a genuine gift, they would be abusing it. It would be exactly the wrong way to go about doing it. You know, taking turns is the only possible way that it could be edifying for the congregation and then only with an interpreter, as we'll see here. If anyone were to speak in a tongue, it has to be few and in turn. And then third, if someone speaks in tongues, there has to be someone present who can understand and interpret. When that extraordinary sign was still seen legitimately in the church, if someone were to speak miraculously in a language he hadn't actually learned, naturally speaking, in a natural way, either... There needed to be someone present who already knew that language, or there needed to be someone who, by the Holy Spirit, could miraculously interpret the language. Again, that would edify the congregation. If you can interpret what's being said so that everybody can understand, then everyone's edified. Again, examples I've seen in the modern day have not only included you know, whole congregations supposedly speaking in tongues at once uh, chaotically, but but I've also seen preachers praying or preaching and suddenly you know, breaking into what's supposed to be a miraculous speaking of another language, and there's no attempt whatsoever to interpret what's being said so that the congregation's edified. So again, that's against the principle that we see here taught by Paul. But Paul says in, in verse 27 and 28, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at most three each in turn, and let one, or read that, let someone interpret. But if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church. Let him speak to himself and to God. And by the way, as we saw before, we know that Paul is not talking about a private prayer language here when he says speak to himself, because we see that the, he's talking about him being silent here, as opposed to him being able to speak where other people can hear. So, And it would be able to be interpreted. If someone in the early church spoke in tongues, there needed to be an edifying use for it. There had to be an interpreter. Number four, most should silently pray and reflect on what is spoken in a worship service. In verse 28, Paul has tongues and interpreting them in mind when he says, let him keep silent in church. But this, we can see, we can, see can be applied more broadly to corporate prayer, to teaching in general. You know, if we're all talking at once while somebody's trying to teach us, who's going to learn? Remember, the point of 
having an interpreter is that so, one, so that everyone could be edified. But if nobody's listening, who's going to be edified by it? Back in verse 5, Paul wrote, I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. So again, we see this overarching principle of edification as well throughout this chapter. While someone is praying or teaching in the church, the rest should be quietly listening and assuming that it's godly prayer, giving assent to it. Only one speaker at a time, and the the rest should be silent and listen. Most should silently pray and reflect on what is spoken in a worship service. Five, those who speak or teach God's word have to take turns. So again, could you imagine if if all of the elders were standing up here and trying to teach you and teach different things and talk to you all at once, it would just be chaotic. Nobody would be edified again. One at a time. That's one of the applications of the, the words translated in order in verse 40. One at a time, everything in its proper place. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge or discern. When in the apostolic era before the completion of the New Testament, there were prophets receiving revelations from God, and much of which got into the New Testament, right, uh, to guide the church. Listeners needed to discern whether something being spoken to them was authentically the word of God. Anybody could get up and say, I have a word from God. Listen to me. We need to be able to discern what really came from God. As we saw back in chapter 12, that involved discerning whether a message glorified Christ or not and whether it was consistent with what we already had written in God's word. Ordinarily, a prophet who received a message for the church's guidance would speak his message. As with tongues, it should be done in turns so that people aren't talking over each other, and only one or two or three at the most in a given service. If another prophet received a message while one was speaking, the one speaking should let the new revelation be spoken, Paul says. Verse 30, but if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. And the prophets needed to be disciplined in how they go about the proclamation of God's word so that it was done in an orderly and edifying manner. Verses 31 and 32, for you can all prophesy one by one that all may hear and be encouraged and the spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. That's a way of saying the prophets need to both be self-controlled and be discerning of the truth or not that's coming from another supposed prophet. We need to be checking and seeing. Is this what's being proclaimed consistent with God's word? For Paul says in verse 33, God is not the author of confusion but of peace. Or again, literally, God is not of confusion, but of peace. That's why prophets must not confusedly talk over one another. And why their messages, excuse me, why their messages have to be judged against God's word, his written word, and the principle of the glory of Christ. God is not of confusion, but of peace. Hebrew shalom as the words being interpreted here. All things in their rightly ordered 
God-ordained places. One prophet or teacher speaking at a time. Those speaking or teaching God's word have to take turns. Number six, then, only qualified teachers may teach in the worship services. Now, the grammar of the Greek makes more sense if we put the end of verse 33 with verse 34. Uh, God is not just the God of peace when Christians gather for worship, right? Uh, But rather, it, it would go with the next verse saying, As in all the churches of the saints, let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. Now Paul's using churches here in two different ways, uh, two nuanced ways, when he says, as in all the churches, and then let your women keep silent in the churches. Uh, just as we use church in various nuanced ways in the way that we talk about it. As in all the churches and all the assemblies, the local congregations of the saints, whenever your congregation has a particular assembly for worship, the words ecclesia, meaning an assembly, let your women keep silent, he says. Now, notice a few things about the silence that the women are to practice here. A, they're not permitted to speak, he says. And here he's talking about this in the context of addressing the congregation for teaching. During the worship service for the particular point of instruction, he's saying, let your women keep silent. That requires a position of authority to teach in the church. 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12, let a, let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. So the question here is one of authority. Since for the sake of proper order, a woman is not to teach or hold authority in the church over men, uh, women then keep silent relative to teaching in the worship service. I heard lots of female voices singing when we were singing psalms a few minutes ago, and that's good. Right? Asking questions or uh, making comments uh, through to or through the teacher in a Sabbath school is perfectly appropriate. In a Bible study, perfectly appropriate. Singing with the rest of the congregation, that's actually commanded. We're all supposed to sing to one another psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, as Paul says. Giving assent to a prayer with an amen audibly, that's not a violation of this. As we saw back in verse 16, we're supposed to be able to say amen to the prayers, and how could we do that if we don't understand what's being said? The question is about giving instruction in worship. Another thing to consider, B, is that women are to be submissive, as we saw before, to their own husbands, as the Old Testament also teaches. That would be a principle, as he says here, as the law says. Paul says, verse 35, and if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. It seems that some women in the Corinthian church were being disruptive during Worship and Paul's addressing that issue here. So, along with other things that were disrupting the worship, uh, Paul points out a problem that needs remedying here that some of the women are, are uh, interfering with the teaching. Uh, we know in the early church, women prophesied, uh, they received and pronounced messages from God. In Acts 21 9, we're told the proto deacon Philip had four daughters who prophesied. Uh, They just wouldn't have done it in the context of a public worship service. See, it may be that Paul is speaking specifically about the wives of the prophets because he's been, he just told the prophets, he's talking to them, 
You need to be taking turns. So the preachers in the church. In verse 34, he refers to your women. Here, uh, whose women? The congregation's women? Or maybe just the preacher's wives. He was just giving instruction to the prophets. The inclusion of the possessive pronoun indicates wives of somebody in the Greek there. It may be that it's particularly the wives of the teachers. The wives of those who are teaching in the church were taking it upon themselves to interrupt their husbands and say, uh, hey, maybe you should think about this. Or, and Paul's saying, stop doing that. Just ask your husband about it at home and quit disrupting the service and interrupting your husband when he's preaching. So they were told to bring the point up with your husband at home and not to interrupt the worship service. Uh, indeed, it's, it's not even that, that all men are allowed to do this. It's not as if women need to keep silent, but men can do whatever you want. You see in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 and 5, 17, elders are the ones who are to be teaching in the church. So uh, putting all this together, we see that the only qualified teachers may teach in the worship service, and the rest of us need to listen and be taught. And again, this is true. You might think, well, that's easy for you to say because you got to be the one doing the teaching, Daniel. Um, but when I'm in a worship service and somebody else is teaching, it's not my place to, to stop, in the, stop him in the middle of the sermon and say, hey, but what about this? <laughs> I can ask him later. So we see again that, that it has to be qualified teachers. Number seven then, the written word of God is central to worship. Verses 36 through 38. Or did the word of God come originally from you, or was it only you that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things which I write to you are the commands of the Lord. But if anyone is ignorant, let him be ignorant. Uh, Paul gives a test here. An authentic prophet will agree with what the true apostles and prophets have already said. What's been written in Scripture Verse 38 can be interpreted, if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Uh, Paul will not verify the authenticity of any so-called prophet who won't recognize the authenticity of the real prophets. So along with this, we see that, that God's written word has to be central to worship. Why? Because that's where we have God's prophetic word made more sure, as Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1. All that's done must accord with the written word of God. All that's taught has to be from it and in accord with it. What we have in Scripture is the very word of God that has to be taught and heeded in our worship services. So just to conclude, worship services have to be conducted decently and in order. Uh, there is a solemnity to biblical worship. It's not to be a chaotic or disorderly um, sort of uh, gathering of people that's noisy. And there are times when that's perfectly fine. If you're at a wedding reception and everybody's talking once, fine, that's, do, do that. But not when we're in a worship service. Though the matter of tongues is or should be a moot point for the modern church as the gift ceased in the time of the apostles as we saw before, we can see the certain principles related to it. Relish in orderly worship service. 
Cling to that which edifies. Those are the things to be preferred in a true service of worship in the new covenant. If you're qualified to preach and lead the worship, take your turn. Don't disrupt, but take your turn. Otherwise, be silent. Listen to the prayers and the teaching going on in the church. Only those qualified by God are allowed to teach in the worship service. And then also delight in the centrality of God's word in a healthy biblical worship service. Let all things be done decently and in order. Let's pray. God of peace, grant that we might delight in your worship and delight in doing it your way in an orderly fashion, in a way that is becoming of your people who reflect your character as you are a God of order. So let us do all things indeed decently and in order to the glory of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.